This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 97. Today's episode is all about the freedom in truth. You're not aware until you're aware. And I think awareness is the scythe that cuts the weed of your ignorance and your blindness, right? Like it becomes the thing that allows you to see whether you have any bias at all. And when you're not attached to being right or you're not attached to being wrong and you're not attached to justifying anything because you have no shame if you are wrong or no, you don't pat yourself on the back excessively if you're right, then the impetus and the motivation for all of these biases start to go away. Most biases are either driven from craving or aversion that we're either avoiding our own shame or craving the desire to be right. And that's what creates our bias. But if we train ourselves to just be more neutral and look at these things and then be willing to be wrong, you know, be willing to be like, yeah, well, we thought this was a good idea. It was really dumb. And here's the truth of it. Now we see. Turn up your frequency with mind love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends and wild people. First off, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button. More subscribers means even better guests and tons more value. Plus, it helps me grow the show so more people can find it. And if you ask me, everyone could use a little more mind love. Hello to all you wild minds. Today is an exciting day because guess who I have on? Aubrey Marcus. He has been on my bucket list for a while now, and I finally felt like it was the right time to uh, slide into his DMs, if you will. Aubrey has a podcast, the Aubrey Marcus Podcast, which gets over a million downloads per month. He's the founder of a fitness and supplement company called Onnit, and he's really just killing it in life and business. If you've been listening for a while, you've heard me talk about Paul Selig, or you even heard my interview with him back in episode 38. Well, Aubrey just wrote the foreword of Paul's latest book, which to me is a huge accomplishment. This interview was actually done in his studio at the Onnit HQ in Austin, Texas, and I flew out because I thought, if there's one thing I've learned on this journey is the power of your network. And being face-to-face with someone who's further along than you in business is usually a really good investment, even if it's just to get a little insight into their world, how they run things, what their energy is like, and all of those good things. It's just powerful being around people blazing in the direction that you're heading. And of course, building your network. I've gotten a lot of DMs on Instagram from you guys who are taking massive action on some of your passions. Like Missa out there who got the courage to start a YouTube channel and started doing videos on Instagram. And Rachel who finally launched the Etsy store she keeps talking about. And Amy who just felt like it would be really good to start journaling privately. It doesn't always have to be a business, you guys, as long as it feels good to you. I think too often we think our passions have to be our business, but that's not always the case. 
Well, since so many of you are inspired to take action on your passions, I'm going to share some insider tips about how I'm building what I'm building as the tips come up. So if you're interested, catch me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa, where I'll share some of the ways that I've been able to connect with really big entrepreneurs this year, like Aubrey, because it was a strategy. I didn't just reach out on a whim. I probably wouldn't have gotten a response back. Well, back to the topic of the day. We're talking about freedom and truth and what those things really mean. But first, I want to catch you up on a little backstory that we touch on in the episode, but we don't really go into the detail of it. If you follow Aubrey's podcast or on Instagram, you'll be right up there with us. But for those who don't, I don't want to keep you guys hanging and thinking, what are they talking about? Well, Aubrey was in a very public, open relationship for the last few years with his fiance. It was originally his idea. Depending on your style of open relationship, there might be different containers, as they call it. Maybe you're open to sleeping with people, but don't want to have the emotion. Maybe you allow for it all, and you think that love can be shared with multiple people, and that you don't want to inhibit each other, so you're fine with your partner falling in love with somebody else. I did a lot of air quotes when I said fine. (laughs) I'll be honest, I'm not sure how convinced I am, but again, different things work for different people, and there's plenty of people who have an open enough mind that they want to live a life like this. If you're not, it doesn't mean that there's this right way to do it, and you have to freely spread love. Listen to your body. Listen to yourself. Do what you can handle. Do what feels right for you in your relationship. So Aubrey and his fiance were fully open, and then his fiance met someone and even fell in love, which I think was a lot harder for him than he thought it would be. There were a lot of skeptics out there that followed him. You can see the comments on his Instagram. But there's also a lot of people that say love should be fully shared. And there's books about it, sex at dawn, and there's open relationship counselors. And it really just depends on what lifestyle you want to lead. Well, they recently split up after seven years together. And it's hard. He's been very public about his struggles with that recently. And so as far as I know, this is his first interview really openly talking about what he thinks about open relationships now after having done it for so many years. And because open relationship seems like this ultimate idea of freedom in a relationship, I thought it would be a great topic to tie in to really see where that comes from. Because I think a lot of times the freedom that we think we want in the beginning of something isn't always the same as the freedom that our soul really craves. So now that you're all caught up, today we will learn how the most freedom is often found in structure, how to escape our own confirmation bias when it comes to our decisions and how to keep showing up in all areas of your life, even when you're going through something really freaking hard. And we'll even learn a little bit about sex transmutation. Real quick, have you signed up for the morning mind love yet? Sometimes waking up on the right side of the bed can be a little difficult. The morning mind love delivers short messages to your inbox with a thought or a tip to start each day on a positive note. I get messages from people every single day about how the morning mind love is their favorite way to start the day, or that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. You'll get a free guided binaural affirmation meditation designed to rewire your brain to your highest self. And you'll get one of my favorite tools, a really cool booklet of Powerless to help you gain clarity and live with intention. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 444-999. That's morning to 444-999. And now it's time for Aubrey Marcus. 
I read the foreword that you wrote in Paul Selig's book. I've read all of his books. They're mm-hmm. my favorite. One of the things you said in there was that uh, your goal with a lot of the work that you do is freedom. So what does freedom mean to you, really? Well, freedom, it's a simple concept, but when it actually comes to putting it into practice, it's a lot more complicated because we're unaware of the control mechanisms that we have inside of us. So everything from our desires to our preferences to our fears, you know, those are the main things. It's either like an aversion or a craving, but they're so deeply wired into the system, right? So there's a preference for pleasure over pain that's deeply wired into the human organism. There's a preference for reproduction versus celibacy. You know, it's deeply wired into the human organism. There's And then there's more egoic preferences, you know, the desire for validation versus the desire for disapproval, you know, or the fear of disapproval. So it's really becoming aware of all of these different processes. And it's not that I'm going to say I'm going to equally prefer pain over pleasure. But if you really look at some of the top spiritual masters like Ramdas, who just suffered a stroke and you listen to him talk about how he says something like, I love my pain, I love my wheelchair, you know, so he's really trying to flatten out that curve of desire versus fear and get to a place of radical acceptance of what is and then get to a state of loving all of the reality that's around them, which is what someone like in Paul Selig's language or in the biblical language, they would call the kingdom of heaven, right? Mm -hmm. The, The availability to see love and grace in all things. And that's really freedom. But that's the extreme capital E enlightenment version of freedom. You know, I'm just looking to get out of my own way of my jealousies, fears, needs for validations, cravings for, you know, these different material things that I think will bring me happiness. But ultimately, the farther you go, you realize don't really do that. And the more that you can get to acceptance and presence in the moment, the more free that you get. Yeah, I was going back and restructuring my values, like seeing if I was still in line with what they were before, because I find that even though these have core things are the same, there's different things I discover along the way that expand them in a little bit. And what I realized is that through my whole life, the deepest value I've always been searching for is freedom. And in so many ways, I did it in the wrong way. Like when I think about, you know, first going to college and having freedom, I took it to another level. I was binge drinking. I developed a really heavy eating disorder. But I remember thinking, oh, I can eat whatever I want and then just purge it. And it started out as like this feeling of power and then Mm -hmm. it took over. And I found that so many of the things when I was younger, before I understood of what I thought would bring me freedom or was this way of expressing my freedom ended up really taking control of me. And now I find a lot of it in structure. With structure, I'm able to be free to actually do the things that I really want to do. Have you ever found that? There's an interesting study that showed that when kids had a really large, large playground, they all huddled very close together because they didn't feel comfortable going out and exploring the far reaches of the playground. But in a much smaller playground, their play activity increased because they were exploring all of the different niches because they felt safe within the boundaries of a smaller container. So that's like structure. You can look at it that way. And having some framework around 
what we wanted, what we're able to do and what we want to offer ourselves actually will allow us more freedom because it will reduce these natural inherent fears and things within us. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense and that, you know, structure can allow freedom and that some structures like the structures that I wrote about in my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, right? Like that structure has a lot of flexibility, but the structure of doing those things repetitively gives you more energy, which gives you more freedom to choose things that you might not have the energy or awareness or vitality to do otherwise. So it is definitely a dance. And it's not, as I said, it's a simple concept, but when it's applied, how you apply it is where the intricacy and, and finesse comes into play. Yeah, I'm taking that same concept I know that you are right now transitioning out of an open relationship that was really public. And part of that, I was thinking about how, you know, when you first hear the idea of an open relationship to the people who are open-minded to that, it does seem like this way of expressing a kind of more freedom in a relationship rather than kind of enclosing you. How did your view of that change now that you're out of it? It didn't really sound like you plan to do, be in an open relationship again, what are your thoughts now? <laughs> well, the open relationship is an interesting thing because it is definitely an expansion of freedom. But the way that I look at it now is kind of an intermediary step because it puts a lot of pressure on the relationship and all of the boundaries that are within that relationship that you put in, all of the expectations actually become a little bit more challenging and a little bit more painful you know, because they're constantly getting tested. So I think it's an interesting experiment and it's taught me a lot. But the way that I'm looking at it now is that, you know, post-transition and just looking at my relationship with Whitney now and looking at what is actually happening now, I'm really looking at something that's actually even more radically free than an open relationship. Because, and this is a little bit contrary to what we were saying before, where structure actually creates freedom. I think in a lot of ways in a monogamous container, there is a structure that can contribute to freedom. I think in open, you're in this kind of weird middle ground where you're always pushing and testing the boundaries. And it's very difficult to actually carve out what is okay and what is not okay. And so, what I think the conclusion that I've come to is either... All right, keep it with a more traditional construct, but I would always want to have truth be something that we could always express. Like there's no excuse and there's no reasoning or rationale from holding truth from somebody because that's just holding love from somebody. Mm -hmm. So I want the utmost expression of love. So no matter what, truth has to be expressed. And that means if you're attracted to somebody, you express it. If something's there, but what you actually do in person, well, those boundaries could be decided. And I think that's fair. If you're in an open relationship, though, the boundaries are so already flexible and so expanded and so intricate and so detailed that I think it lends itself to a lot of different problems. And I think a better construct is really radical freedom and unconditional love, which is what we have for our friends. You know, we just love our friends so much that as long as they're happy, we're happy and that we're okay with whatever decisions are made within that. Now, when you talk about kids, I think that's where you have to have some inflexible boundaries, some really clear understandings of how the parenting will go. But again, then I think that comes down to, you know, what's going to serve the kid in the most unconditional, loving way and not in the most coddling way and not in the most 
enabling way, but in the most kind of loving way. I'm more interested in in unconditional love than I am in any kind of conditional love. And I find that most relationship constructs have a lot of conditions. I love you if. I love you if you keep your body only to me. I love you if you don't like this other person. I love you if. I love you if. I love you if. And I much prefer I love you no matter what. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. Yeah, it's really difficult to compare the average relationship to a lot of the things that I'm seeking now, because I found that the more I grow, the more I find myself surrounded by people who are seeking ascension or seeking that growth or seeking truth in one way or another. And so I don't consider it to be average. You know, it, it's not the same as what you see in a rom-com or <laughs> on right. TV or whatever. Like right. sometimes you, I watch a sitcom and I was like, well, people are modeling their lives after this. <laughs> like yeah. it, it's terrible. Like just like the jokes about never wanting sex and like this and like sitting down, I don't know, just watching TV all day. It's just, and that's what a lot of people are modeling their relationships after is what they see in the media and things like that. But one thing that I have found is that I'm married and in my relationship, for me, it was different. I had those jealousy relationships, those really toxic relationships for sure. One that a lot of them. And when I found my husband, it was like, it felt the same as it does when you find alignment in something that you really love. Like everything got easier than rather than harder. Mm. And whereas a lot of I've heard there's so much growth that happens in open relationships. My husband and I have talked about it just because we are on a path to growth and we're like, wait, is this the next path we should take? Let's talk about this. But for us at this point, especially we've decided that one of the most freeing things is that there was so much back and forth or searching for this person or dating or apps or whatever before. And then we found this person that's willing to support us along the way through our dreams and 
there was so much more time to actually go for our goals. And so it kind of, while you're still in the open relationship, it would sort of blew my mind. I was like, how does he have time? (laughs) There must be so much like chaotic energy going on at that time. And you're accomplishing so much. How did you balance those things? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a cost. Yeah. There's a cost. I mean, I paid a cost of time and emotional energy and time is a factor, but I think more than time, it's motivation, right? Like we all squander a lot of time. And I think time is actually put up and placed in a much higher priority and a much higher hierarchy than it actually deserves. Because when we're really motivated and we're really like fired up, we can accomplish 10x what we would in kind of a lackadaisical, unmotivated day. So yes, there was some time that I had to dedicate to processing different things, to meeting different people, all that. That was a part of it. But the majority of the cost that I paid was in emotional exhaustion and where I would just show up here and I could muscle. Th- I have the ability, you know, the kind of warrior ethos to handle what needs to get handled. And no matter what, I mean, one of the most challenging times of my life was during my book launch and there was unavoidable talks, speeches, podcasts, things. And I would just leave all of that shit at the door, no matter what was happening, no matter if I was crying and retching in my bathroom, like an hour before when it came time to show up, I would show up. But when it came time to be inspired and do the other things that to create and to help lead this company and to do that, I paid a cost. I paid a cost for the emotional turmoil. And that's just the reality of it. And I think now in the place that I'm in, I'm seeing such an expanded capacity and it's not so much in time, it's in inspiration. It's in the freedom of my mind to think about things other than the relationship and to explore in my head. Because I can actually work really fast when I get my head and my emotions and my spirit all aligned to the same goal. But when things are fractured, when my heart and emotions are just obsessed over a relationship, then it's everything slows down. So I paid a price, you know, and the price was partly had a benefit to my emotional growth, but it had a cost to some of the productivity and CEO leadership goals that I was aspiring towards. Do you have a specific practice where, say you are in one of those down moods or you're having a really hard time in your life and you have to go into CEO mode? What do you do to get yourself there? I don't have an option. I don't give myself an option. You know, and I think that's the value of an ethos, right? Like the Spartans, when you talk about ethos, like there's some warrior cultures really understood ethos really well. The Spartans and the samurai. The Spartans had an ethos, never give up, never surrender. Right. So the Spartan army never, never surrendered. That just wasn't an option. You never saw the Spartans running away from their enemy, whether that was the 300 of them at Thermopylae or whether that was any other situation. It it just wasn't an option in their brain to do something different. And I think we always spend so much time negotiating with ourselves like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And I do the same thing for things that don't involve the ethos. But when I know I have to do something, podcast is going to release on Wednesday. The newsletter is going to release on Wednesday. The Instagram posts are going to go out every day. That's not a choice. That's part of my ethos. That's what I'm going to do. It's inflexible. So if I have to do it, I'm going to do it. And I just don't give myself options. Even though I could, 
Spartan could run away. The army could run away. They can actually turn around and run, but that's their ethos. It's not a choice. And I think for me, it's just, um, I call that process mental override or I call that process ethos where it's just, when I know I need to do something, I will. And I just don't give myself that options. And I think too many times people give themselves the options of like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should. And they'll waste hours, days, months in this deliberation and dilemma about whether they should or shouldn't do something when I think it's actually helpful. It's a shortcut to have things that just aren't a choice anymore. Yeah, I have found that I used to pride myself when I was younger on, oh, I'm just really indecisive. It'd take me forever to order. And then I started realizing, wait, indecision is a form of pain. Mm -hmm. And being in this limbo state when you don't actually know, it's worse than even doing the worst case scenario. Right. <laughs> Half the time is just not knowing which one you're going to choose. Right. You're like sitting there. Yeah, that deliberation is really, really difficult. Going back to when you were starting on it, when you were starting this entire journey with everything that you built, were you always that person? Or is this something that you've discovered about yourself or just figured out that if I need to get to the next step, I have to be this kind of person? I think I always had a bit of that in me. You know, I mean, I was reading, I was obsessed with samurai culture when I was younger. I was always the, I was the captain of all my sports teams. I was inherently somebody who had a certain principled set of ideas you know, and, and those principles over time become an ethos. And I think it's strengthened for sure. But I think it was always something that I really kind of understood, you know, that there's certain things about myself that don't change. And that develops over time. You know, I remember certain instances where I remember one instance early on in the on it days, we had a much, much smaller office than this and probably 15 employees. And we had one of the sweetest people I've ever known working at the front desk of the little office we had. And I had a tiny office. It was nothing like this one. And I was recording a video in that office. And as I was recording the video, I was stressed out. I mean, at 15 people, I'm wearing 10 hats. I'm the CMO, I'm the CFO, I'm the CEO, I'm the COO. I'm like all <laughs> of the different things, right? And we're trying to get this video out and I hear this knocking at the door and knocking at the door and I'm trying to ignore it because I'm trying to finish this video. I'm about five minutes into this video and I don't want to restart it. And we don't have a lot of editing capabilities. It's got to get out. So I'm just hoping the knocking stops and the knocking keeps going. And I'm like, finally, it just breaks my concentration. And I like rip open the door. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> what? I'm recording a fucking video. And like I see her and it's the sweet girl from the front desk mm -hmm. and she starts crying <laughs> and I realized like oh fuck like that is not the CEO that I will ever be again you know I'm never going to allow myself to lose my temper like that and hurt somebody and be the cause of somebody else crying you know because I couldn't control my emotions so there was somebody there to see me she was knocking on the door she didn't realize there was a video going not her fault, you know? So like those things that then becomes an ethos. Like since that day, you'll never see me yelling at somebody else, one of my employees in that fashion. You know, that's just not something that I'm going to ever do. And, you know, it's not that I haven't ever raised my voice in all of my entirety of my life. There's certainly been heated arguments in relationships, but there's that 
particular aspect was like, all right, this is an ethos. This is something that I will not allow myself to do. And there's, there's, so you add to that, you add your ethos bank as time goes on and things get clearer and clearer and clearer. And as time has gone on, things like telling the truth, you know, like telling not only the truth, but the micro truth, you know, this is becoming more and more an ethos. And I foresee a time where I am perpetually perpetually in truth now i'm a very honest person now but there's times where you kind of hide things a little bit and you don't don't really express it and you don't want to say something to somebody you know it's like somebody else you have two different people you're dating you know i'm single now so i'm back in the dating field and i'm dating two different people and somebody asked me you know like oh how did that date go with that girl you were seeing you're like let's say it went great it was phenomenal like the impulse is to go and this is what i would normally do yeah it went pretty good it went pretty good which isn't true if it's phenomenal it was phenomenal so the truth would be yeah it was phenomenal that's the truth <laughs> and that hurts that stings i have to sit there and i have to acknowledge that that's going to be temporarily a sting but it that truth also gives the other person the freedom to actually access the truth and make decisions to say wow, I don't know if I want to continue dating you if you're having phenomenal dates with somebody else. And it gives them the freedom and the autonomy and the agency to make all the choices that they want. Everything else is black magic. If I go, yeah, it was pretty good. But meanwhile, I'm falling for somebody. And this isn't happening right now. But meanwhile, I'm falling for somebody else. That's not being in truth. And so a little thing from going like, yeah, pretty good to the actual truth, which is exceptional. That's something that I'm really leaning into. Is just like, no matter what, always telling both the truth and the micro truth. And I believe that that will become part of my ethos. And right now it's an intention and, uh, and hopefully it'll become an ethos. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially if, you know, if I was one of the girls in that and then you build up this, your own frame of what you think that relationship is. And I'm the kind of person who would automatically be like, I know this has to be better than the other one, <laughs> you know, right, and the, right. to then to be presented with that out of the blue would be almost soul crushing. But to be able to formulate my own truth around the truth alongside the actual truth would be difficult, but it would also be so much healthier in the long so run for both people. Yeah, it's a little bit of short term discomfort for a a much bigger long term trust and growth and opportunity to actually make decisions that you want to make you know everything else is slightly condescending and manipulative you know any kind of sugarcoating any kind of positioning is fundamentally some way in which you're being slightly deceitful for your own benefit we do it all the time that's just being you know that's just human nature but it's not something that's helpful and it's not something it feels worse and worse you know every time i catch myself doing it. and you also have to be aware of it too because it's a subconscious process a lot of times. So having more awareness and then more commitment to that level of truth and transparency, because truth ultimately is love. You know, it's loving not only the person right in front of you, but the person five years from now and the unborn and dying conscious, undying consciousness that's within that person. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. 
A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So then in an experience like that, would you only offer that kind of truth if the person asks, or do you think that it's healthier to be forthcoming without them asking and like coming home to your other date and saying like, I'm sorry, yesterday was so phenomenal. I just <laughs> have to tell you about it. It's a balance. So I think the rule of thumb is that, is it something that I would tell even my best male friend? You know, like if it's really something on my heart and on my mind and it's like my actual truth, you know, what I tell it. Now, I don't go to my homies and be like, yeah, and then this sexual detail and then this thing happened and then, you know, like I did this thing and she said this thing to me in bed. You know, like that's an unnecessary level of detail that it's not that I'm 
withholding that from somebody if they really wanted to know like, all right, so what was it like? Like the moment that you hit the bed, I was like, well, this is what happened. But you don't have to volunteer that information unnecessarily. But let's say it is something that had a dramatic impact. Like, wow, man, like I had a freaking phenomenal date. Like if that's something that I would tell one of my friends, that's something that I have to tell one of the people who I'm intimately involved with. You know, and I was actually in this situation recently where, you know, a girl that I was dating out in Los Angeles, she didn't want to know anything that was going on. She's like, look, I know that you're dating other people. I just don't want to know anything. And I was like, I really don't like that, but I'll try it. And what I found was, is that by me not being able to express anything that was happening, I was unable to actually receive any love from her anymore. So, like, I couldn't feel that she actually loved me. I feel like she loved the conditional version of me, the projection of me that was withholding the truth. So, I was like, hey, like, I can't do this. I either need to tell you what's going on or, you know, this isn't going to work. And she opted to say that this isn't going to work because she didn't want to hear what was going on in my life. And it's not like I was trying to tell her, like, bedroom details, but I was just like, look, I'm dating this girl and I kind of like her. You know, or like I need to be able to express that in order to actually feel right within myself and also feel like the relationship is of right accord. It's amazing how much of our ego is wrapped up in that reflection of the other person brings back to us in a relationship. It's like I look back at past relationships. Now I think I could explore an open relationship, although I don't necessarily have the desire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's like, you know, I've learned so much in this in the relationship I'm in now, just there was something very healing about this relationship for me where it was like I was shown a better way to love. And I started to realize how much of my worth was wrapped up in how the relationship was going or how if somebody was cheating on me, it was automatically a fault of mine, whether or not I took that on verbally, whether or not I admitted that to myself in my heart, I would feel like, oh, well, I must not be doing something. There must be something lacking here that this person needs to go get. When Rarely is it about <laughs> the other person. It's yeah, usually totally. about that person. And so I'm curious now with your transition out of that relationship, though, is it hard to date right now? It does seem pretty fresh, right? You're pretty public about all of your, <laughs> all of mm -hmm. your sharings of it happening. How are you handling that? Like for me, it was always so much easier to take like a detox break from all relationships rather than even trying to. <laughs> Well, this is a different scenario in that the open relationship broke me of a lot of these patterns of validation. Mm -hmm. You know, I was desperate for validation from Whitney and I would just get broken over and over and over and over and over and over and over until I learned a different way. Like we suffer until we learn to get sick of suffering. And mm -hmm. so it changed me in a fundamental way in which I wasn't rebounding from a relationship where I felt rejected looking to get validated from someone else who could show me that I was sexy or worthy. Like a lot of that stuff was healed, not completely healed. There's probably still some scabs on it, but nonetheless, like all of the emotional, I've been through the emotional crucible of all the things. And I'd gotten to a level of awareness where everything is really relaxed. Like even that girl, I really, really liked and I would say even loved the girl I was dating out in California. But when she made the choice that, you know, look, this isn't for me, I was 100% okay with that. You know, I had lived by my principles. She was acting upon her principles and there was nothing but love that remained and we're still, you know, close friends. And I think 
that's something that wouldn't have been possible you know before one i would have been tempted to continue some kind of charade and continue you know to just keep everybody in a position where for my own pleasure and my own selfishness that i had all of these different options but i'm just in a much more comfortable place where whatever i kind of trust in the abundance of it and whatever happens will happen and whatever's in accord as long as i'm being truthful and always presenting the truthful most truthful option then I feel good and it feels easy. And for once, I'm not emotionally burdened. You know, I feel like I took a thousand pound sack of rocks off my chest, you know, and I'm able to actually be free in a much, to a much greater degree than I was before. So that feels really good. You know, it feels really good to just trust my truth and then trust in the abundance of what happens. And whether that means that I'm alone for quite a while, indefinitely perhaps. I'm sure I'll have people who I'll spend time with. I'm pretty confident in that. But if not, then so be it. You know, like that's okay too. Like I'm okay with the options that are there. And so it's really allowed me to focus my priorities on my health and my business and my service and my mission and, you know, those things that are more important to me than what's the next relationship validation hit, like a, like a little junkie that I was. I think a lot of people's default when a relationship ends is, and it makes sense to automatically see what they're missing out on now, like what they've lost now that that's not there anymore, not a part of their life. But there's also the option of focusing mostly on what you've gained from that. And like, mm. we really do have the option of taking those things that even the positive patterns we've created within that relationship, the things that we've learned into our life, into our next relationship, whatever, and leaving the things that we don't. Yeah. People judge success or failure based upon whether you broke up or not. Like that's the most preposterous lie that's ever been told. Like, did you learn things? If you learned things and did you have fun along the way, then it was probably a success. Where a relationship fails is when, it's, when there's stagnation, when you're neither learning nor enjoying. At that point, that's the only time that you're failing. If you're either learning or enjoying, you're winning. Good for you. You know what I mean? Like the criteria of till death do us part, you know, blah, 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 all of this other stuff, I think is a false criteria. And learning could be tumultuous. You know, my learning was definitely tumultuous, but I don't regret a moment of it. You know, I look back now and I've had to apologize many times to Whitney. I mean, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. I was so dumb, you know, <laughs> and I was like such an idiot. And she was like, I know I was such an idiot too. And I was like, but it's okay. We were doing our best and this was our way to learn. How do you learn not to be an idiot? Well, you be an idiot. And then you like realize the consequences of your idiocy. And then like, that's, that was the path that we took in a lot of ways. And we had a lot of enjoyment as well. So that's the balance, but it's just reframing that criteria of success and failure. I heard you say on a past podcast at one time when you're still in op the open relationship that there's a part of you that's addicted to suffering. Do you still feel that way? Because just a minute ago, you said, you know, until we learn that that's not the only way or until we get sick of suffering or whatever, what stage are you at? Was I or was I not addicted to suffering? That's an interesting question. I know that if there's suffering, I'm going to put on my helmet. I'm going to grab my lance. I'm going to spur my horse and I'm going to go straight towards it because suffering is a choice. Pain is optional and pain is, you know, something that the universe is going to provide, but suffering is some kind of 
deficiency in your mindset. Some for suffering is some kind of egoic flaw. And so if there's anything that, and it's generally based on fear and resistance. So if I see something like that, I'm going to head towards it. Now, does that mean that I'm addicted to the feelings that I get there? Maybe, maybe I was addicted to the kind of cortisol and norepinephrine and whatever other things that come from the suffering that, that exists there. But that also, I might also be addicted to the growth that comes on the other side of dispelling that. And I may actually just be fighting like hell to be free. And so if I see a monster and that monster isn't real and all I have to do is go charge my steed at it and, you know, take whatever superpowers it has and withstand them and overcome them to defeat it, maybe I'll do that. So it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, if someone wanted to argue and say, yeah, man, you were addicted to suffering that you just liked it. I'd be like, well, maybe you're right. <laughs> and if someone wants to say like, no, man, you were really courageous and you're just finding all of the things that you're afraid of and going towards them so that you're no longer afraid so that you could be free. I would say, okay, maybe that's true too. You know, I prefer the latter, but, uh, but I'm open to the former interpretation <laughs> as well. I think with so many things, both truths exist, you know, right. like there's two different ways to look at almost everything and whatever you is going to be more worthwhile or more helpful for you at that moment to get you to the next step is the truth that we should go with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like they're not mutually exclusive. And I think like, uh, I've really been diving into Joe Dispenza's work lately oh, and same. we are very much actually chemically addicted to the things that we're used to. So to say like, no, I wasn't addicted at all to those feelings of suffering. Like that's not true. I'm sure I had upregulated all of the receptor sites for all of those chemicals that get, re get released when I'm in intense jealousy. So, but then through practice, you can break the stories that you tell yourself and break the patterns and break actually the chemical dependence on that and break through to different levels of happiness and freedom. And I'm feeling that happening. You know, I don't know how long it takes. Some, some people say 14 days. Some people say longer. Some depends on how well your body adapts. But I can feel myself breaking the need to feel those challenging feelings. I have felt a huge freedom in just understanding those chemical reactions that happen inside the brain and the body. Because otherwise, it's so easy to identify with whatever feeling that you're feeling. And I remember taking a class in college and learning about the brain and being like, holy crap, like this is just like these feelings are happening because of this. And so now my job as a human or as a being is to understand how to ride this wave rather than completely overpower it because it's going to happen anyways. Mm -hmm. But that ego self wants to be like, no, I'm in control. So if this is happening, then of course it has to be a part of me. And of course there must be a reason. And oftentimes that means, of course, the recipient of whatever my feelings must be to blame them. Yeah. Yeah. I think awareness is the greatest tool that we have. And the more aware that we are without shame, you know, because shame is what clouds awareness. It prevents us from actually seeing what the truth of the thing is that's going on. And the more that we can banish shame and, and rise in awareness, the faster we'll be able to navigate from one place to another. Speaking of the two truths kind of holding the same value and going alongside each other, I feel like that also applies to the idea of, you know, learning through 
suffering and also finding alignment and realizing that sometimes if we just shift over here or if we're struggling so hard, yeah, we can learn by going through to the end of that. We can also just pivot. And I think you were saying this on your latest episode with Danica Park, how she was saying, you know, there's the hard way. And then she'd just be like, well, why don't I try this over here? And she Mm. goes over here and all of a sudden everything becomes easier. Yeah. Yeah, you listen to Danica Patrick. That's Danica that released Patrick, to, yeah. that released today. That's I'm on my shit. You're on your shit. <laughs> yeah, there are many ways to learn. You know, and we started this with a conversation about Paul Selig, and that's one of his biggest teachings: is that there's many ways to learn. How do you want to learn? Do you want to learn the, through the suffering way, or do you want to learn through the love way? You know, mm-hmm. like both are valid ways to learn. The soul does come here to learn, but how you learn is up to you. We do have free will. And I think that's the interesting thing. I tend to be stubborn and thick-headed and I need to learn a lot through the suffering way. You know, like <laughs> I need to learn that the fire's hot by putting my hand into the fire. You know, some people can look at that and be like, oh, wow, when everybody touches that fire, they get burned. Like, I don't need to do that. I learned, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I envy those people. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I even wonder if those people actually exist. It's interesting, but uh, we can all do that to a certain degree. You know, we can all like, listen and learn and and that might accelerate our ability you know like instead of having to touch the hot fire or the hot frying pan five times we can touch it once learn about thermodynamics learn about heat transfer learn about what's happening to ourselves and all we need to do is touch it once (laughs) you know but i still think for most of us we usually need to touch it at least once do you have that thought with open relationship is that something that you touched once are you going to go touch it a few more times. <laughs> I think it's, I don't think I would ever do it the same way again, mm. because I learned that that way is, I think, a way to learn, but I don't think it's a sustainable way to live. Mm. And I mean, I think it gets actually a little bit more radical when I look at it and I could be wrong. I'm wrong all the fucking time. <laughs> you know, that's just the nature of who I am. But I see myself either in a committed relationship where we commit every day to refreshing the senses and being present with one another and forming a partnership and then consciously choosing to remove ourselves from the option of intimate expression with other people. I see that as one possible way. Or I see a path of radical, unconditional love with whomever I'm in radical, unconditional love accord with. And so... I either think it's a very clear relationship, you know, it's just truth, but there's a boundary around all forms of intimacy. And that's a willing sacrifice that we're both choosing to make for each other. Or I see instead of open relationship, a relationship beyond labels, a relationship where we don't even call it a relationship. Like it just is what it is. We love each other. And we're going to support each other. And if that person goes away for a while or comes back for a while, we just keep in touch, just like we do with a friend. You know, when we have a really good friend and that friend, we haven't talked to them for a couple weeks, you know, and they hit us up. We're not like, hey, what the hell, man? Like, you didn't hit me up for three weeks. Like, what's your problem? You know, it's like, hey, man, what's up? We haven't talked in a minute. Sorry about that. I've been busy. You've been busy. Oh, cool. Let's go grab drinks. It's like, let's hang out. You know, it's a, there's no expectation 
for the like the amount that you have to do something. Whereas an open relationship, you know, when Whitney would go see somebody else, when she would go see Ricky, she better come back and show me how much she loves me, you know, because there's these expectations of maintaining a certain level of relationship to call it a relationship and to make it, you know, to make the hierarchy work. And so, you know, I really see myself either on one of the other sides. I think this middle ground was an interesting way to learn. But I see myself in a much more kind of unconditional love paradigm where we're just, I'm free to express love with whoever I find love with. Or I see myself in an intentional, committed, you know, kind of spiritual practice for, with finding presence with an individual. Whole open relationship started because I remember you talking about how, you know, in the beginning you were like, well, I don't know if I could be with one person. Like, I'd like to have sex with multiple people. So, do you feel like you would have to tame that or would it be like just the next struggle to find that other level of commitment? Well, yeah, I said that. I said that I'd like to have sex with other people. True. I also needed to have sex with other people because I needed the validation that having sex with other people gave me. So, like was a false euphemism for what the truth was. The truth was I needed it. I was feeding a hungry ghost for validation. You know, like somebody who buys 10 supercars and has them all in their garage, right? They can be like, I like cars. Maybe, but maybe you need cars. <laughs> maybe you need cars to feel good about yourself. You know, someone could be like, I like being wealthy. Maybe, maybe you need to be wealthy to feel like you're worthy of love and success from the father that never told you that you were good enough or whatever that is. So like like and need is an interesting thing. And I think, yes, I still like, you know, having intimate relationships with different people. I like the novelty of it. I like it, but, and, and I'm not going to say like, hallelujah, I'm healed. You know, <laughs> like I'm never going to be so bold as to say that, but it feels like I've transitioned from the place where I need it. And, and now it is actually where I thought it was which was in the place where I just enjoy it. And if it's just in a place where you enjoy it, there could be something where you enjoy more. I might enjoy the commitment to intimacy with one individual. I might enjoy that more. And so it would be a willing sacrifice. Like I could get to the point, I like alcohol, but I might get to the point where I dislike my hangovers more than I like the feeling of being drunk. So that'll make it easy. But if I need alcohol, well, then I'm an alcoholic. I was a sex validation-aholic. Well, then a sex-aholic, but I was a validation-aholic. You know, I needed it to feel like I was worthy of love as a man. So, now that I am feel like I'm no longer a validation-aholic, well, I think there's a lot of options. Did you discover that while you were in the relationship still, or did it take it to end to really see? Took it to end. I mean, I had insights, but until all of that was released, <laughs> I can tell a I mean, there's so many things that you understand when you understand them and like you kind of have an idea, but then you like understand them because you feel something shift. I'll, I'll tell this story. So, all right, for one thing. So, one of the challenging things that really, really was very, very difficult for me in the relationship with Whitney was the guy that she fell in love with. He's a really good guy. His name's Ricky, but he hasn't really put any emphasis on his career at all. He kind of just goes around the world and has fun and parties and he's part of a crew that the crew has money, they're well funded. So they just kind of like cruise around and have fun. 
I built my own internal value structure on the idea that to receive the gifts of the universe that are of the ultimate value, you have to earn them. You have to earn them. And so Whitney falling in love with Ricky and in my mind, Whitney's love and Whitney's intimacy being the greatest gift of the universe. I had projected that to be the ultimate gift of the universe. I'm not sure that I think of that particularly too differently now, but I had decided that that was in my world, at least that was the greatest gift that the universe could give. And that gift in my mind should be earned and how it should be earned was through excellence, through excellence in business, life, service to the world, commitment to a greater mission, support of someone's career and their well-being and their life. Like it, it was built upon this criteria. So when she fell in love with Ricky, I was broken on multiple levels because my whole structure of what I thought made somebody worthy of love was dismantled. Mm. So I wasn't quite aware of that. I was just like, man, she loves Ricky and it hurts. You know, why does it hurt? Well, I, and I had some inclinations of that, but it wasn't until she actually started dating somebody else who was a Super Bowl champ. And when she started dating the Super Bowl champ, who's to be a Super Bowl champ, you have to work your ass off. And this guy had worked his ass off. He paid the cost. He fit the criteria to me of what someone would have to do to earn the greatest gifts of the universe. I felt like my whole internal world just shifted instantly. She like went on the date with this Super Bowl champ and I was like, oh man. And then I realized that and I'm like, what just happened? What in the world just happened? Why did that happen? And then that curiosity of like, why did that happen? Oh, I see. Because this was actually even deeper than relationship. Because this was actually all the way to the core of my understanding of reciprocity. Do great things in the world, receive great things from the world. And like my extrapolation of what was happening was that that wasn't true anymore. That it didn't matter if you did great things. You would still receive equally the greatest things in the world depending no matter what you did. And this is in no way a slight on Ricky. He's a great human being. I, this was my own criteria that I was projecting on him. But I wasn't able to realize that until it happened. Mm. And like, this is the long and hopefully interesting story for people, <laughs> but it's a long way of saying that sometimes you don't know till it happens. Sometimes until we broke up, we didn't realize that all of the rules that we had and all of the expectations that we had and trying to uphold this capital R relationship that we had was actually limiting us from loving each other to the extent that we were capable. Interesting, because I almost feel like that story you just told, the reaction could have gone two ways. One could be like that she meets this other person that has earned this, that you feel like needs to be earned. And it could have almost taken away a part of your identity, like, well, this, I'm the person that gives her this in this way. Ricky's the person that gives her this in this way. And now there's this other person, wait, he's giving her this in the same way I'm giving her this. <laughs> and that would depend on the lessons that I needed to learn. So somebody else would have, if I felt like I needed to be needed and I needed to be special because of this thing, like if that was the, where the core trauma and the core, that's what I needed to learn. It probably would have felt bad for Whitney to see this other guy. Mm. Oh man, he's providing the same thing. I'm useless now, like whatever, like, but that's not where I needed my growth. 
I needed my growth in the understanding of how I understood the world. And ultimately, this is all folly. This is all like, I'm not saying like, I'm right. And now it's finally all everything in the universe is right. Like you shouldn't have to do anything to earn somebody's love. Love is just love. And everybody's worthy of love. Everybody's enough. There's no, there's no way in which I'm better than Ricky. And that's something that I was holding on to. I was holding on to this idea that because of what I do for the world, I'm better than him. So I deserve something better than him. Well, I wasn't getting anything better than him. I was getting the same thing from Whitney as he was getting. So this whole idea of I deserve it because I'm better. Well, that was where my folly was. That was where the fallacy was. And so until that shifted, I wasn't aware of how much that false idea and that expectation was hurting me. When you have an ideology like that, though, it's so hard not to also reflect that onto other people. And I'm thinking back when, especially really younger years, I think, at least for me, that you have to earn it or you have to look like this to get this kind of love back or whatever. It was all these levels. I'm like, okay, well, that person's like a five, that person's like a seven Mm -hmm. there, like whatever. And it's funny because when I started to heal that inside myself, and a lot of it was after healing from such a long eating disorder, was realizing how much I focused on other people's weight too. And so when you heal that thing in yourself that you're seeking, a lot of times you end up having such a more loving, expanded view of the people around you too. Mm Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great story and a great reminder. And I think I'm probably still somewhere along the path of healing that, of like really not judging people. It's really a place of non-judgment, you know, and that's a place of universal unconditional love. And I think there's a difference between universal unconditional love and specific unconditional love. Like Paul Selig talks about universal unconditional love. That's the upper room, as he would say. That's a place where you look at everybody beggar or king and you look at them the same way you look at saint and sinner criminal and exemplary citizen you look at them as their true self not as the self that's being expressed and or the actions that they've done and you can apply that to any category you can apply it to beauty you can apply that to success you can apply that to service you can apply that to a variety of different categories but the ego loves to judge because the ego knows itself in relative position so when the ego is activated and in charge it's going to be judging constantly and certainly my ego was strongly activated <laughs> and judging based upon a criteria of a combination of success and service to the world i find it really easy to get into that mindset though when you are as a person who's constantly growing there was a period especially in the beginning of growth when i was first I don't really know what to call it. It's definitely not enlightenment. But like when I was first awakening to just the idea that there was something more than just what there was in front of me all the time, I remember it being really difficult not to judge the people who weren't at least trying to awaken themselves in those way too. Mm-hmm. And seeing like, well, why are you so happy with being complacent? And there was something in Paul Selig's book actually about talking about the upper rooms and talking, basically stepping into your higher self for people who haven't read that. But says that you have the right to stay in the lower rooms and you're just as loved anyways, the levels of fear. And he says like, no, thank you. I wish to stay on the lower floors. I wish to stay where I've been in the resonant floors of fears. You are loved where you are. There was something about hearing that that was like, even though I've moved beyond that 
I know not to judge that. I know that's just, they might be seeking something completely different. They might be learning a whole different lesson in this lifetime. Something about that word choice that was like, it was this other moment of like release for me of that Mm. judgment. Yeah. Well, because we internalize these things. We internalize our own worth of love based upon our own judgments. Like another teaching of his is you can't judge somebody else without judging yourself. He calls it putting them in the cave. You can't put them in the cave of your judgment without also putting yourself in that same cave. Every single moment that we're judging somebody, we're putting ourselves at the level and vibrational accord of that same judgment. So every time I was in judgment of Ricky for just partying and having the best time ever, I'm judging myself in the same way. I'm actually bringing myself down to the same level of judgment that I'm projecting upon him. So every time we do that, we're suffering ourselves. And so that's, people think this is some noble, altruistic, purely thing, like don't judge others. And then they might get high on their own righteousness, but that's not it. It's very pragmatic. When you're in judgment of somebody else, you're dropping to that same level that you're judging somebody and you're going to feel it. The ego might feel good like, oh yeah, I'm doing better than this person, but your true self is at the same level. Maybe your total self, I should say, is at the same level that of the one that you're judging. Because basically, if you are judging somebody, you're holding that as your construct of the reality that you're living in. So if you're judging somebody, you're automatically judging yourself for those same things. Uh, Paul Selig says, what you damn damns you back. Mm-hmm. And it's so true because you're basically living to your own expectations, which means if you fall short of them, you're going to feel that same judgment on yourself as you're giving upon somebody else. Yep, exactly. I'm curious about, in your book, you talk about this basically structure for the day, which I love because I have a very structured day, as I've said before. But You have placed this emphasis on sex. And one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you, because in Think and Grow Rich, uh, Napoleon Hill talks about sex transmutation, where you basically divert the energy that you would have with sex and hold it off from yourself and divert it towards something else. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who probably have a bias to judge to kind of come up with a hypothesis after the fact, right? Like Napoleon Hill probably figured some things out and maybe wasn't having the sex. (laughs) This could be a hypothesis. I don't know. I don't know his life. I don't know his biography. Let's say this scenario occurs. You're really good at one thing. You're really good at getting rich. You realize that you haven't been having much sex. Feel a little guilty about that. Then you're like, aha. But the reason is, is that I've been diverting all my sexual energy into getting rich. And that's been a key to my success. You know, it could just be confirmation bias. Mm. You know, like, I'm not sure where that all falls. I do know that there's the amount of energy you put towards doing something is there's a limited amount of intention that you have. Like, if you're constantly seeking a new intimate relationship, well, then you're probably going to be spending less time constantly seeking a new business opportunity. So, but I think there's ways that these can actually be synergistic and mutually supportive where you're actually using sex as a way to help manifest things into reality. And that's kind of the core of Tantra. Like if you look at Layla Martin's work or some other different Tantric practitioners, they're actually using sexuality as a way to bring into manifest certain things that they're looking for in their business and certain things they're looking for in their life. So I think it's not so much what you do, but it's how and why you do it. And I think that's really the ultimate truth. 
Yeah. And some of it is probably, like you said, kind of accepting your circumstances and being like, well, what am I going to do with this? I guess yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> transmitting the sexual Yeah, energy. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no wonder I am. It doesn't matter. I haven't had a date in five years. I'm, I'm transmuting it into this thing. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how we get beyond the confirmation bias, though, because, you know, a lot of times we don't realize that that's what we're doing. And even if you look at the relationship, I'm thinking of the episode you did on Whitney's podcast where the first half was with you guys together. And then the second half, you were like the most well-versed in my work of any individual that's ever interviewed me. So I have to, <laughs> I have to give you credit for that. I like to be really prepared. <laughs> you are very prepared. But it sounded like there were a number of things that you guys said that were adding to the relationship. And then it seemed like in the second half, it, it was going back and being like, well, when I'm really accepting this as it is, that was hard and this was hard and this was hard. And so do you think we can start to move beyond the confirmation bias a little bit? Or was that confirmation bias? Well, certainly we were deluding ourselves a lot during the relationship to some degree. And I think when you become aware, you become aware. You're not aware until you're aware. And I think awareness is the scythe that's, that cuts the weed of your ignorance and your blindness, right? Like it, it becomes the thing that allows you to see whether you have any bias at all. And when you're not attached to being right or you're not attached to being wrong and you're not attached to justifying anything because you have no shame if you are wrong or no, you don't pat yourself on the back excessively if you're right then the impetus and the motivation for all of these biases start to go away. Most biases are either driven from craving or aversion. That we're either avoiding our own shame or craving the desire to be right. And that's what creates our bias. But if we train ourselves to just be more neutral and look at these things and then be willing to be wrong, you know, be willing to be like, yeah, well, we thought this was a good idea. It was really dumb. Here's the truth of it. We, now we see. I have found that. I grow the most when I can identify with less. It's like, I think I'm this type of person, but it's like, if I, I hold on to that too much, it becomes this sort of confinement for me. Whereas if I'm like, well, this is what I think I am. Let me try over here. But at the same time, our self-image is so much what drives us. Like if we believe that this is what we're going to create, how do you go back and forth with the self-image you're creating? And then also being willing to let go. Like I'm kind of thinking about you guys kind of were the open relationship people and now you're moving beyond that. So how is that shifting with your self-image? Well, if we'd identified as the open relationship people and we were invested in the idea that this is the way and it has to work and this is the, we would have a lot of struggle with that. But I think we were always fairly mindful of like, this is what we're doing now and this is what we're learning. Mm -hmm. And there is no doubt that it taught us a lot. Yeah. That's one thing that is for sure. And again, if the goal of all of us is to learn, which I believe it is, you know, and that's again, what Selig says is we're here to learn. And that was a way for us to learn. There's no doubt about that. So attaching ourselves to simpler principles, like you said, simpler principles. And if that principle is to learn, well, we nailed it. <laughs> you know, we <laughs> did a good job and, uh, certainly could have enjoyed ourselves a little more if we were a little bit more aware, but we learned. We learned the ways that we learned. Well, thank you so much for spending this hour with me and our listeners. 
I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know who you are because I do talk about you on my podcast sometimes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for if there's anything you want to plug or let people know about your I'm doing a new uh, little segment called Ant Books, mm. which is kind of cool. It releases on Monday. So my Aubrey Marcus podcast releases Wednesday. That's with a guest in the format that it's been. But Ant Books releases on Monday and it's me reading a short passage from a book that I love and then talking about it for about 10 minutes. So much shorter format and uh, gives people a chance to kind of dive into some denser philosophical issues. So yeah, check that out. And then I've put a lot more effort in my Instagram lately. And so take a look at that as well. That's just at Aubrey Marcus. All the links mentioned in this episode, including a link to Aubrey's podcast, his book, and any of the sponsors will be at mindlove.com slash 097. And please take a screenshot of this and share it on Instagram and tab both me, Mindlove Melissa, and Aubrey Marcus. Let us know your biggest takeaway from this episode. What did you love about it? For me, there were a lot of insights that I really loved, and Aubrey's just always had this way of explaining things really poetically. And don't forget, I'll be sharing some of my networking tips about how I've been able to connect with some of the top influencers in the business this year. It's been a strategy, so and it's really been working for me. So I'd love to share those things with you for any of you that are passionate about building your business, making better connections, and just surrounding yourself with people who inspire you. I've also been exchanging a lot of voice messages with you guys, which I've been loving. It's so fun connecting with you guys and getting an insight in your brains so I can deliver the best value to you with this podcast and see where your pain points really are so we can talk about them. So that's Instagram at mindlovemelissa. And as always, subscribe, rate, and review. Share this podcast with a friend, family member, or coworker. And thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.